Imagine studying an LSAT curriculum designed just for you. This is LSAT Boss. LSAT Boss the Class is an advanced learner-centered curriculum available now on Teachable. It's to be completed at your own pace and processing speed, and it's designed and taught by me, Shauna Ginsberg, the founder of Ginsberg Advanced Tutoring and the host of the LSAT Boss podcast. Our curriculum includes lessons that build towards an advanced understanding of logical reasoning, reading comprehension, and analytical reasoning, homework assignments that require you to master concepts before moving on to the next one, strategies that teach you the economics behind test day decision making, especially when stuck between two answer choices, and anxiety management techniques that teach you how to regain your mental clarity under timed pressure. I'm bringing you the entire curriculum in a set of 33 interactive videos, a convenient and affordable online format that you can use to study anywhere. So what are you waiting for? Get started today at Ginsburg-Advanced-Tutoring.Teachable.com. That's Ginsburg-Advanced-Tutoring.Teachable.com. Hi, welcome to LSAT Boss. I'm your host, Shauna Ginsburg. And with me today is a special guest co-host, Beyonce of the LSAT world, Trudel Perret. She graduated from UPenn and had some pretty specific aspirations for LSAT prep. And you, by the time you had come to me, had moved through a couple different test prep options, looking for somebody that could really help you with strategy, anxiety, and so forth. And you ended up improving 13 points with me, and I will let you share what your big final score was as a graduate of the Ginsburg Advanced Tutoring Program. Yeah, so I scored a 177 on the July 2020 LSAT, so that was um, very exciting. Much better even than I was like sort of hoping to score, so it was cool. Definitely a lot, a lot of the credit goes to. A 13-point improvement is huge, a 177. What I thought was so fascinating about your process was you had a lot of skepticism going in. You had a lot of distrust, I think, for yourself and for others. And it wasn't just performing better on the content that resulted in your score improvement. I think you had a lot of kind of philosophical changes about how you approach standardized tests. And I, to this day, continue to talk to people about how regimented you are with your processes before, during, and after timed sections. Yeah, a pretty big breakthrough because at the beginning there was some variability or there was more variability, I guess I should say, in my scores. Mm -hmm. And we had like a pretty big breakthrough when I started doing more mindful meditation, like right before the test. And so I, I was really sort of focusing on trying to make sure that I was like in the right headspace to go into the section. Because um, I think a lot of the time it wasn't a content issue to your point, right? Like it was more about like how do I make sure that I'm in the right headspace where I can focus and I can offer the test like the precision that it needs. Yeah, and I think that that really speaks to what it is like to treat studying as a part-time job when that part-time job is an evening job and we are not at our sharpest then, right? And that's when we saw the most, I think the, Olive even recalls, my dog remembers, your late nights 
the poor scores that would happen when you were studying exhausted and doing that pushing through that we like to do, which often results us then saying, I selected that answer choice because I liked it, which is maybe another way of saying because I was tired and because I really wanted to finish this up and go to bed. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I do think like, like sort of to that point, so there's like a couple of things, Like I think like the, the mindfulness, but also like you had me go through this test at one point, like you were like, are you like eating well? Are you exercising? Are you like doing all this other stuff? And like, that's so, so, so important. There's a lot of people I think who really have this sense of, oh, you know, what I'm able to do work-wise, you know, there is this sort of culture of, like, I can push through, I can um, really sort of just keep working and working and working and working, um, and and that my, like, my mental health or, or sort of, like, my ability to, like, intellectually execute doesn't diminish, um, but I, I just think that's, like, that's so wrong, um, sure. and, and I... And, and so I think that that's, like, why, you know, it's interesting. Like, I think that's why there's that reaction, right? People are sort of like, oh, well, like, that's not what this is about. Um, but really, like, it is, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, that reminds me uh, how I would only take days off of work when I had walking pneumonia or the flu or when I was a teacher. I literally had to be green in the face. My students would be like, Miss G, you really need to go home. You do not look good. And I'm like, okay, fine. I win. I get a day of rest. And that's how oftentimes people consider tutoring, too. You have to wait until your score is so sick that you're deserving of help. And I think that's just our, our culture of it's not acceptable if I compare my score to the average score to go out and get a tutor because a tutor is for somebody with a deficit. But a deficit is less than a 177 if that's what your goal is. A deficit's whatever yeah. you make it to be, right? Before we head into our lesson today, which is uh, assumptions, which is why we had you on because this is my favorite to teach because it was the hardest one for me to learn and because we've created this really precise way of tackling assumptions that turns it into such a strategic approach that it renders the analysis nearly mathematical. Like it's so precise that when you and I were talking before today's podcast, I was comparing building the assumption into an argument like a, a missing piece of a a sturdy table that simply requires everything to be squared off and nailed in perfectly. Otherwise, of course, you can see its defects. So everything needs its all of four of its legs. And uh, an assumption argument without its assumption is like, you know, a missing leg on it or a table with a missing leg. Um, so before we get into the assumptions, I would like to start. I think it's time. <laughs> I'm ready. Okay. Now, I'm ready to box them. Now, this is our first episode in a long time that Claudia Ryan isn't here with us, and she usually brings a very um, dark and humorous uh, angle to things, but she's left us, at least temporarily, to head to law school. I mean, good for her, but we, we, uh, we're going to replace her with the nerdiest, the nerdiest Mythbusters we possibly can so that when she comes back, she's going to be like, this is, why, this is what you all did while I was gone. You do these nerdy things and watch that they end up being our highest performing podcasts to date. So let's bust some really nerdy myths. The first one I want to bust with you is, um, well, if you'd like to to say it, it was it was something that was really the myth that was busted for you as you went through this LSAT process, right? Yeah. Like a couple of like friends who were studying for the LSAT who said this to me and like also like a couple of even tutors that I worked with that were like, oh, you know, this is sort of how the test works. They, they said you know, the, the logical reasoning and the reading comprehension are less 
precise than the logic games. Because in the logic games, people who enjoy math like tend to do well in the logic games because it's very, you know, a lot of symbols. Um, there can be literally some math in there, simple math. Um, and you sort of, in the same way that you have with the math problem, there's one answer that's like very obviously correct and four that are very obviously incorrect if you've done the work right. And and I think, do you want me to bust the myth or do you want to bust it? Well, so the, the myth is that reading comprehension and logical reasoning strategy is less precise than logic game strategy. Yeah. Well, that's a myth. That's a total myth. And please, bust that wide open. Well, I actually really loved your table analogy. I think that, you know, the, the structure of the logic game makes it really easy for you to say, you know, you're looking at something and you see an obvious hole or you see, you know, what's wrong um, just because it's, it's symbols, it's numbers, um, but I and, and I think that that's where you know we can sort of be tra- like we're sort of trained to look for issues or flaws. I think the thing about logical reasoning and reading comprehension, though, is that in the same exact way, there's an answer that is completely correct, and there's an answer that is all of the other answers are in some way wrong. And so, as long as you're using sort of the right strategy, you're looking at it in the right way, it can become just as precise sort of looking at To me, reading comprehension and logical reasoning are the word problems. And the logic games is the algebraic computation, the stuff that doesn't ask you to pull from the, the language and the semantics, turn it into that, that numerical or symbolic expression, and then create your mathematical deductions from there, right? I mean, if you read an inference argument and it says, if I study hard, then I'll do well on my test. I didn't do well on my test, therefore blank. And it says, it's an inference question and you have to logically complete the argument. How is that any different than seeing a logic rule in logic games that says S arrow, like if I study hard arrow, then W do well on my test. And then you put in the contrapositive because it's, I don't know, an in and out game, right? Like if S is on the team, then W is on the team. If I study hard, then I do well on my test, right? So if I not W, then I not S. What that would mean in logic games, right, is that W and S are both out together, right? If W is out, then S is out. But in the inference world, all you have to do is complete the contrapositive. So arguably... The semantic analysis that we do in logical reasoning, and especially this holds true with assumptions, is of course mathematical. Where do you think the math came from after all? Right? I mean, and the logic games is just one chunk, one paragraph that with a set of provisions that if you do it the way that I teach it, you reduce it down to a set of symbolized rules and then insert it into much like an Excel spreadsheet, a a diagram where you can... Uh, take all of the possible permutations and combinations and reduce them in templates, right, based on the rules that that allow you to do so. I think it's all connected. It's just looking at it in a different form. No, for sure. And I actually think that, so after we started working together and we were sort of talking about logical reasoning in this precise way, really breaking the sentence structure down and talking about the semantics of it, um, on the test, I actually started 
you know, writing it out in a simple form, because that was something that, you know, you sort of introduced me to of like, let's take this phrase, you know, it, it becomes A, and then this phrase is C, and then, and that works really well, um, I know we're talking about assumptions here, but it works really well with like parallels. Parallels, yeah. Um, yeah, because you can really easily see the structure that way, and then you can just compare it really super mm -hmm. easily, and it just breaks the whole question apart. Yes. Um, and so I think that that, that precision is definitely there. You just have to like hunt around for it a little bit. And it's definitely like something that I think is, if you don't have a formal logic background, sort of unique to the LSAT for a lot of students. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we really go into that formal logic and we, we talk about the rules, modus ponens, modus tollens, modus tollendo ponens, because that is the logical reasoning form. The problem is that most students, especially LSAT students, are only taught it in a reductive logic game sense and they say I know what the contrapositive is and I go great but that's like the like the summary of the actual inference rule that that stems from formal logic and if you understood where it came from you can really see the bigger picture um, so yeah I just I, I love the precision and and certainly Claudia would be very proud of how incredibly nerdy all of this is and probably be relieved that she's not doing this one with us because she's reading case briefs <laughs> which is its own which is its own form of nerdy too oh yeah oh yeah she says she loves contracts is that a problem she said she really loves contracts she loves her contracts professor i'm like that is awesome get it love it <laughs> eat it up sit in the front row gunner raise that hand <laughs> um, I never heard it called this, um, but she got called on in class. It's the Socratic method where you get randomly called on. She said she got cold called, and I loved that she called it that, cold called. So um, here's to you. I raise a glass. Well, it's a cup of hot tea to Claudia. And just for you, Claudia, I made sure that the brown butter Rice Krispie treats that I made earlier this week were long gone before today's uh, episode. So there's really no reason to be jealous. No one's getting anything today. Okay, so assumptions. In keeping with the busting of the myth that logical reasoning is imprecise, oh my goodness, how precise am I going to get with assumptions? I'm going to get all the way down to the definition of what an assumption is. You know it. Such a nerd for this. Do you hear the sheer joy? I mean, there's giggling coming through. Trudell is not present in the studio. There is just giggling from both of us right now. It's going all the way throughout Silver Spring, Maryland. I'm sure everybody can hear the pleasure we get out of assumptions. So I want to talk about the definition first. I'm going to break it down. So it's not just the definition. It's the parts of the definition. That's how meticulous we get. So the assumption is an unstated premise that is accepted as true or as certain to happen without proof. An unstated premise, let's unpack that. I didn't say stated premise. What is a premise? Well, if you recall, a premise is a stated fact, not opinion, and not unstated, right? So the premise is a fact that must be accepted as true. It's given. We accept it. There's no evidence needed to support it. It's given. Okay, so if that's what a premise is, it's something you have to accept as true, then the minute I tell you an assumption is an unstated premise, guess what? You got to accept its truth, which means one of these five answer choices when you plug it in, like you state it, you take it from an unstated state to a stated state, 
plug that thing in right in between the premise and the conclusion, whatever order they're presented. Because you know from prior episodes, the conclusion can be sandwiched right in the middle like in the cream filling of an Oreo cookie. It could be first, it could be last, but wherever it is, if you say the, pr pr the premise and then you insert the correct assumption, make it stated, what is an assumption? It's an unstated premise that's essential to an argument that is accepted as true or is certain to happen without proof just like a premise, right? So we're gonna unstate it. No, let's state it, treat it like a real premise, and then let's see how essential that puppy is. Trudell and I were already talking today about it being like a missing leg on a table. Another way you can say this is it's a chemical catalyst. It allows the whole thing to hold true. That's what essential means because what's the opposite of essential? Unessential, irrelevant. And all of the incorrect answers you'll find are, are irrelevant. They they're, have to be. not essential. Right. They necessarily literal. have to be irrelevant, right? Because you have to take the assumption that literally. So um, semantic yeah. analysis is what I'm all about. That is how we plug in the answers. That's what I keep talking about with, with uh, taking the premise and conclusion and, and sticking the assumption in. Or uh, if you visualize it, and Trudell hates when I show her this visual, I have this thing called a memory palace, which takes you through. <laughs> she hates it. She's not a visual person. But for some people who like visuals, visualize this for a moment because it's the strategy of tackling the assumption. And I guess, Trudell, can you unvisualize this for a moment? Just close your eyes or uncapture this because I don't want to make you sick. Yeah. You hate this graphic. Okay. So the memory palace is a strategy to memorize a series of events or numbers if you do like a YouTube search type in memory palace, you can get a whole explanation about how it works. You can memorize thousands of things by placing items into rooms and giving them some sort of um, like correlation to the items in the room. So it's easy to remember and you then can visualize yourself walking through the rooms of your house. So imagine you're walking into a room or, or a house, but in order to walk in, you've got to open the right door and there's three doors. There's a causal door. There's an analogy door and a data sampling door. What do I mean? I mean that when you're reading an argument, you have to properly identify the argument type. What kind of argument am I reading? Causal, argument, data sampling. Frankly, if it's an abductive argument that goes A to B to C to D, like it's a line of events kind of thing, you can walk through the causal door. That's fine. So you open the causal door, okay? And then you wipe your feet off on the conclusion carpet. And so that means that you identify the conclusion of the argument. And then you go into the bathroom and you find the P in the toilet. That's the premise. All that means is after finding the conclusion, you identify the premise. You can do that using the Y test. After that, you can go into the TV room or the living room or family room, whatever you want to call it. And you're going to watch a sneak preview of A on the screen. You can visualize an A on your screen. That means that you are developing by prephrase the assumption. And if you walked through the causal door, there's a formulaic assumption. There's actually five different formulaic assumptions. You can pick whichever one you like. Maybe you memorize two. I like doing it this way. I like saying the only reason for the conclusion is the premise. The only reason for the conclusion is the premise. So let's say we're using an argument that um, Trudell studied really hard and mastered mindfulness meditation. Therefore, she did well on the LSAT. Okay, so the only reason for the conclusion is the premise. Trudell, what's the assumption here, prephrased? Mindfulness somehow helps you on the LSAT. 
that is sort of a, a key assumption that you're making there. And one of the ways that I sort of look at this is very often after you've looked at a lot of assumption questions, one of the things you'll start to notice is usually there are there are two words, and I think this gets back to our semantic analysis, right? Mm-hmm. It should be A to B and then B to C when you're looking at that argument, right? So if we kind of break it down and you say, okay, Trudell mastered mindful meditation, that's A, right? And her mastery of mindful meditation is why she did well on the LSAT, right? But there's nothing clearly that links mindful meditation to progress on the LSAT. So that's the very clear hole that's the missing leg of the table. That's why that's the assumption. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the formula that you're relying on is instead of saying the only reason for the conclusion is the premise, which would be the only reason that Trudell did well on the LSAT is because she mastered mindfulness meditation, right? You, you do it as because of the premise, comma, conclusion. Because of mindfulness meditation, comma, did well on LSAT. Now, the visualization that we do with the memory palace is that we're in this living room or family room, whatever, you're, you're previewing, it's like a sneak preview, a movie preview or whatever, you're sneak previewing the assumption so that you can prepare to find the keywords that Trudell and I are talking about. The mindfulness and the LSAT, no matter how you prephrase this causal assumption, there's an element of causation there's some verb that creates causation that acts, it's an action between the premise and conclusion because right now there is no action. There's nothing that connects them. If your grandma played dominoes, I like to visualize this domino analysis as imagine that this premise domino is like a one and a two, like one on the left side of the domino and a two on the right side, like two dots on the right side. And then you have the conclusion, which has like, three dots on the left side and four dots on the right side. And if you're visualizing these, (laughs) what you'll notice is they have nothing in common. The premise has a one and a two and the conclusion has a three and a four. And the assumption has to connect the two and the three. What that means is that the two and the three are closest to one another. If you had an assumption domino piece that you stuck right in there, that was a two and a three piece, that means that the one, two connects to the two, three, and it connects to the three, four. That is another visualization of the assumption. And again, you see that two and the three reflect the premise keywords and the conclusion keywords. And what do we mean by keywords? Well, the keywords are the essential components of the sentence, of course, because again, the necessary assumption is an unstated premise that is essential to an argument. So if you go to the essential components of an essential component, you're probably looking in the right places. What are the essential components of a sentence? Those are the things that are necessary to make it a complete sentence. So semantically, we're talking subjects and verbs. And in complex sentences, that would be their objects too. When we're analyzing these questions, we have to look at the way that these subjects, verbs, and objects are modified with adverbs and adjectives. Because if an answer choice has all the right components, subject, verb, and object, but it reflects a negation, like a negative connotation with the verb, Mastering meditation guarantees LSAT success in all students. Let's say that was an answer choice for an assumption. Let's say another answer choice said, mastery of mindfulness meditation is not necessarily essential to mastery of the LSAT. Notice that it had mindfulness and LSAT in it, but because we said not necessarily, 
the way that we're actually describing these subjects and verbs and objects, the way that we inserted the keywords into the assumption ends up not being that perfect domino piece. What you're talking about with the verbs and the adverbs, like the relationship between these two things, I really love like your point like writing it out and sort of like breaking out the phrases of it and when you use symbols you can really see right like this leads to this we need something that takes this and leads it to that and so you're really able to directly see that too yeah in the lesson instead of uh dominoes i also use letters and i think i heard you reference that earlier if the premise is ABC and the ABC reflects the, the subject, the verb, and the object of the sentence, the conclusion is going to be EFG. And we have to fill in the middle gap. We can fill it in with CDE. And if you hear that in order, ABC followed by CDE followed by EFG. So this middle piece, this assumption, how do we know if we found the right one? Well, back to the memory palace that Trudell can't stand. We're leaving now the living room because now it's time for bed and we're going into the bedroom. And for whatever reason, I, I visualize this bedroom as a pair of bunk beds. But not only that, I visualize it as a pair of bunk beds with two people already in the top bunk. And then in comes A, the assumption. Okay, so what you see what in your visual is you're, while you're going in, you're, you're little A. You're, actually, you're a capital A. And I want you to imagine that's you. You walk into the bedroom and you're going to climb this little ladder into the top bunk where there's already a P and a C. And I hope that you're just imagining this as like a little baby crawling in with mommy and daddy or something like that, whatever. Two parents, two spouses, they're there. Babies crawling into bed in a bunk bed. I, maybe they're in a hostel in Brussels. Imagine that that's why you would find a, a couple in a top bunk <laughs> with a capital A climbing a ladder to get right in between them, okay? So... In this visual, that's what's happening. That's called test number one. You're tucking A into bed in between P and C. Now, semantically, as you recall from the beginning of the, the episode today, I said that the premise and conclusion aren't necessarily in that order, right? Conclusion might come first. And so what do you do for this test? You read the premises. Then you read the answer choice, the assumption answer choice that you like. Maybe you're down to two when you do this test. You read it, and then you read the conclusion. Sometimes I'll throw in some transition words to make it flow better. So if it's an assumption, I might say, and, comma, and then I read the assumption. So you've read premise one, and then and assumption. And then if there's not a therefore or a thus before the conclusion, I might say that word so that my brain can capture it all. When I do this, of course, I'm looking for this domino effect, this catalyst, this middle piece that relates back the CDE whatever visual the tucking it into bed you get the idea yeah and I think to your to your point earlier again I I just like I really love this like picture of it as essential the sort of missing piece right that kind of connects in when you put the right assumption in there should be like no question there's no way for you to like go back and ruin this argument it logically fits perfectly and you can't you can't poke holes in it you can't argue with it like all of the pieces are there. It's just a statement of sort of two facts and then something third that sort of logically follows from them. Yeah. So the other test, that bottom bunk, if you're back to the visual that Trudell doesn't like, but you're still back in the bedroom, you don't climb up because there's too many people in the top bunk. So you, cl- you go into the first bunk. And some test companies, um, they teach a negation test, which I frankly... I'm not a fan of because it doesn't apply, especially in the case of assumptions that are conditional statements. It's just impossible because in my brain, negating a conditional is 
flying it. And so if I flaw a negation, first off, there's a lot of ways to flaw it. So I don't know what to negate in that, right? And then if I plug it in, what am I looking for when it's negated? Because there's a lot of different ways conclusions can fall apart and it can seem like irrelevance can cause something to fall apart. So not a fan. What I am a fan of is something a little bit different, which I call the whether or not test. And so you simply go to the assumption answer choice. You go, is this about whether or not? And then read the subject of the answer choice. The answer choice says uh, mindfulness uh, assures success on all standardized tests. Okay, so is this about whether or not mindfulness does or does not ensure success on all standardized tests? Well, now I can flip it around in my head without worrying about this weird negation process. It's either about mindfulness is essential to success on the standardized test or mindfulness is not essential. If mindfulness is not essential to success on standardized tests, how can we then conclude, therefore, Trudell did well on the LSAT? It falls apart. Yeah. And I, I have to say, I, I would say, too, I don't, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I actually did a book where that was the that was the way that they taught assumptions was like that you should negate them, and I found the exact same thing. Like it just doesn't work in some cases, but this whether or not test like really sort of fits in. It's just like a really great tool to have in your toolbox because when you get down to those two answers, um, sometimes it's it's tough, especially the way that they word it. Sometimes again, if you're not you know, as strong in that semantic analysis, it's hard to sort of see that, but the whether or not just really like draws it out, I think, um, makes it really clear and, and helps you really sort of be able to pick the right answer confidently. Yeah, absolutely. It absolutely does. And I definitely want to invite Trudell back for a, an assumptions part two lesson where we can go over some practice questions together and implement these strategies. The lesson is going to be available to download from the website. And starting today, we are officially launching our teachable course, LSAT Boss the Class, which I'm so excited to bring to everybody because I have been recording every Wednesday and Thursday at lunchtime since February, these videos of every single lesson that we do for logical reasoning, including the assumptions lesson and reading comp and logic games. And they're all incredibly precise and you have a whiteboard where you're seeing me work through and plug in different answer choices, the correct answer choices, right into the arguments. So I have been working really hard. My whole team has been working so hard to put this together and get it on Teachable. Get excited. Get this entire LSAT Boss curriculum that did Trudell pretty well. Yeah, worked great for me. So we're going to end there today. If you've enjoyed Trudell as a special guest star, don't forget, you can leave us a good review. We're also going to be featuring in our newsletters interviews with some of our success stories. The next one that we're going to be putting out is a Q&A with Trudell. We're going to be digging a little bit deeper into some of the strategies that she used, juggling this part-time job that was LSAT. So you can get all of that in our newsletter. You can subscribe to the newsletter at the website. Do you have any pearls of wisdom for our listeners? I think the biggest pearl of wisdom... I think it's really important to take care of yourself while you're in this process that you do what you need to do to make sure that you are mentally and physically healthy. But at the same time, there's not a shortcut for the work. Um, like all of this stuff, all this knowledge that you're getting in these like podcasts, like in all of the content that like Shauna puts out, you know, it's really amazing stuff that's going to be the building blocks of what you need to be successful. But you really have to like find the time, sit down 
and make LSAT studying a priority. So good luck to everybody. And thank you so much, Shonda, for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. We can't wait to have you on for part two of Assumptions. Thank you to all of our listeners. And don't forget to do what Trudell said. It's time to turn off the radio, shut off social media, go 